I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Jesse Kate Shingler, a researcher in outer space policy and governance at the Open Lunar Foundation. Jesse Kate, welcome to the show. How did you originally become interested in space policy? I met a bunch of people who saw space primarily as an opportunity to think about the big picture future of humanity, about what was possible and what we're capable of, to be our best selves and to think about the long term. I attended a conference at the UN when I was about 17. And one of the outcomes of that conference was that we started the first organization to officially represent the voice of young people at the UN on space topics. Uh, And that organization has what's called observer status at the UN, so it can make official statements in all the meetings. And from there, I got involved in a project being led by the Canadian government at the time to try to stop the weaponization of space, which is important to say stop, because if you go home and you tell your parents that your new job is to work on space weapons, they start off being a little bit confused. (laughs) But in the space world, this is one of the important topics, because the main treaty that governs outer space bans weapons of mass destruction in space and military activities on the surface of celestial bodies. But of course, technology is dual use. And so the question of what kinds of activities actually qualify as military and what even as a weapon requires a lot of discussion. That's kind of how I kicked things off. But you know, at the time, I really just thought it was exciting and also kind of mysterious to be thinking and operating at this level where there is no higher authority. So all of the players, all of the actors involved had to figure things out together. There's no roadmap or rules that told us how to pursue the answer. It feels to me like the topic of space policy has received much more attention and interest in recent years than maybe it did a decade ago. Has that impacted your experience working in the space? What has that looked like as somebody who's sort of an OG in lunar policy? It's a good question. I mean, one thing I would say is that that's kind of where the organization that I work with, Open Lunar Foundation, came from, is from the accelerating interest in particular in the moon. So coming from a slightly more longitudinal perspective, I would say that right now what we are seeing happen is many of the claims that have been being made over the previous decades about access to space, uh, about density of operators, about private utilization of space are coming to fruition in new ways. So space is somewhere that There's a field that is infamously full of broken promises (laughs) about what will come to fruition. But for one of the first times in my lifetime, we're really starting to see a lot of the, a lot of those promises come into play and it's changing the landscape for sure in terms of uh, domestic policy and in terms of international policymaking. What is the mission of the Open Lunar Foundation? Open Lunar is the only organization in the world dedicated to good governance and precedence in the lunar domain. Our goal is to use the moon to prototype modes of governance that can be useful for our future in space, but also on Earth. So we see the moon as a place to test new approaches to commons governance challenges of all kinds, basically. That means that we do a lot of traditional think tank work. We write policy and position papers, op-eds, We research the implications of new technology and activities. We work with national and international bodies and governments and working groups and all of that stuff. 
but we, we do our best to have this work that really informed by applied experience. So formal multilateral processes in the international community, obviously they take a while to do things. And that's fine on one hand, on the one hand, but the space world is moving so much faster than those policies are keeping up. So as an organization, what we do is we also focus a lot of our activities on what we can do through active institution design, which involves things like multi-stakeholder processes and operational partnerships that kind of leverage a philosophy of being an actor to have a seat at the table. We call this strategy policy demos. At the core, that means that these are initiatives that operationalize policy concepts in order to test them and to set precedents. We also have a really cool fellowship program. Why did you pick the moon? You have all of space. Why not say <laughs> Mars or Venus or asteroids? Like, why, why were you like, ah, it's the moon or nothing? You know, all the other celestial bodies in the solar system are also excellent. So it's not a favoritism game by any means. But the moon has a couple of really interesting properties to it that make it a useful place to focus our attention. It is the closest celestial body to us in our solar system. And it's the first place that we will encounter where we are going to need to wrestle with questions of sort of territorial governance, as opposed to what we're dealing with in Earth orbit, which is sort of more of a three-dimensional volume. There are still resources to be managed, but the issue of the surface of another celestial body isn't something that we've had to deal with yet in the space realm. So Mars will, Mars will happen, but what we do on the moon will inform what happens on Mars. And it's somewhere that we're going to end up having to go first, no matter where we go after that. So it's more about the timing and the different nature of the moon from the policies that we already have established in, in Earth orbit. And I would imagine that whatever policies are implemented in a lunar context may then set a precedent for other celestial bodies. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So the Outer Space Treaty, which I mentioned earlier, is the primary treaty that governs activities happening in outer space. And the way that treaty is phrased is that it is the moon and other celestial bodies. So one way you could interpret that is like literally this treaty, which is, you know, three pages long or something like that, basically governs the entire universe except the Earth <laughs> in terms of setting a baseline for our activities there. And of course, it is going to be the case that local activities in each place will, will evolve into their own kind of policy regimes. But to begin with, we have as a starting point. One of the kind of key themes of the policy work that we've done at Open Lunar Foundation is to talk about and introduce the idea of polycentricity and subsidiarity, which maybe sound like kind of nerdy policy terms, and they are, but polycentricity basically just serves as a, as a way of, for us to talk about the fact that there will be many different centers of decision-making in these new realms, and that they will overlap in some ways and not in other ways, and that those centers will have to negotiate and navigate their interfaces with each other. And subsidiarity basically just means that we try to answer questions at the most local level that is applicable to coming up with a good solution for them. And so we think that's a good way to connect sort of agency and context to good decision-making techniques. So what does decision-making at a local level look like? Does it mean leaving decision-making with 
the actors who are most actively involved in current research related to space or who have the sort of greatest presence in the soul? Like, or like, I guess, what, what does that actually mean in practice? Absolutely. I think it's a great question. And it's one that keeps me up at night to some degree. The question of who are the local decision makers is one that we haven't, we don't have a good answer to yet. And that's a big part of what, what we're interested in trying to cultivate, if you will. By one lens, you could say that the local decision makers are the, the operators. They're the folks who are sending missions to the moon. But you know, on a completely different end of the spectrum, you could say that, we'll, of course, we're all stakeholders in this object that exists in our night sky that we've grew up seeing on a you know, roughly daily basis. And so how to extrapolate between those two and come up with mechanisms of decision-making that make people feel some level of agency, but that don't rely on necessarily you know, the sort of traditional state hierarchy is one of the questions that we wrestle with a lot. How do you avoid capture from the Jeff Bezos's and Elon Musk's of the world who are kind of the first mover? How do you prevent them from dominating both the conversation about space, but also the policymaking about space? The first part of that answer is that the way that space activities are regulated today is that responsibility for approving launch licenses and therefore missions that get launched by those launch licenses, that all goes through a national approval process. And nation states are responsible for the commercial activities that happen under their watch, so to speak. And so that's one way that the existing systems that we have put in place some checks and balances to make sure that they know what is happening in space to a certain extent and to try and manage it effectively. But one of the things that's beginning to become a topic of discussion, especially when it comes to lunar activity, is that with the big increase in commercial activity focused on the moon, there's also a huge explosion of, of folks who are trying to fly payloads on those commercial missions. And so what you have all of a sudden is not just government actors who are, who are flying payloads or, or you know, government funding an entire mission, and all of those payloads are from the same operator. But you've got a mission from one country, and it's got payloads from governments and private actors and random citizens from other countries. And so the question of how to, how to know what's going up and who's responsible for it gets kind of more complicated and more nuanced. That's all, all to say that uh, there are some processes in place for that, but not tons of others. But I think the other part of your question about how do we stop sort of private interest from dominating the conversation... I don't think we necessarily have great answers for that yet either. But if for, for those of us in the policy world, I think it's a combination of working with those who are most active, and that includes people who are putting a lot of financial resources into the into this space and just talking about why we think it's important to think about these, these topics. But that also needs to be complemented with us having our own approaches to kind of cultivating the conversation and creating spaces for people to have voice. I get the sense, but please correct me on this, that there are sort of two camps when it comes to thinking about the value of commercializing space or the privatization of space or billionaires going to space. And one is that, you know, like as science funding in the US has decreased and funding for NASA has defined and so, so forth, you know, like this is 
the most pragmatic and viable way of continuing to sort of make progress in sort of space discovery. And then I feel like the flip side of that is like, the agenda here shouldn't be driven by the sort of selective interest of a handful of billionaires, and that there may be sort of consequences here that we're not not fully appreciating. And, and, And when we think about exploration as being part of an issue that's of interest to the general public, should it really be driven by private interests or not? Is that a fair characterization of like what the debate is within the space community about billionaire space travel and and so forth or or are there other views that that I'm not representing here and and like where where would you say that you fall in that debate I would actually say that for the most part at the moment there's a mixture in a slightly different way so in terms of private missions that are going to space and again you know I focus most of my work on the moon so when I think about commercial missions going to the moon most of the scientists I know are super excited about the opportunity to fly payloads in a way that's that's like way more accessible to them and direct. Right now, for example, the NASA Decadal Survey was just released, and this is a big report that comes out that basically culminates input from tons and tons of scientists from around the United States and the world to help NASA prioritize like big sort of like 10, 15 year mission priorities. And like, you know, for a long time, that kind of process has been the best way for scientists to kind of get their research and their science questions in the pipeline for getting approved or getting accepted to fly. Now we have all of these different options on much different timescales and much different sort of levels of maturity, which means that scientists can also be more experimental and they can also be more sort of scrappy and exploratory. So I think that's one of the things that's been really neat about that. The flip side that is, of course, you know, there are concerns. And I think the big concerns are really about the risk of monopoly and conflict as a result of that monopoly. So there's a lot of talk about looking at extraction and utilization of resources in situ on the lunar surface. And if one company is to sort of find a a mineable deposit on the lunar surface first, then how will we as an international community manage that? Will they have exclusive access? Do they get to lay a claim to that? There's a whole bunch of questions that are very much in play right now. And and I, I also hear a lot of concern about that too. Not because people aren't, of course, folks in the commercial community generally are doing what they do because they're excited about space too, but their pressures are different. And so, you know, they're not jumping up and down to have regulation imposed on them either. Do you think we're likely to live off planet anytime soon? I think that we, in our lifetimes, will see something that's kind of like a science outpost or research outpost on the lunar surface. So I don't know that we'll have totally persistent or, uh, you know, kind of like settlements, like long, long duration settlements. But I think we're likely to have something that's maybe either like a company town or kind of McMurdo station or infrastructure that is persistent that has rotating casts of folks going through for for research and development purposes. I know you talked about different nations being in charge of regulating their own space launches. How do you enforce norms internationally when stuff's already up there? Once you get approval from, let's say, the most fly-by-night country that's shooting things into space, how do you then say, okay, but like, your satellite needs to come down or that thing that you just put on the moon is not cool. (laughs) 
We don't is the short answer. This is also an issue that comes up in the law of the high seas, right? When we, the way we manage the oceans, there's the expression flag of convenience, right? Comes from that domain. And that's something that shows up in the space world too. Even though nations regulate their national activities in space, including national commercial activities, but there's nothing that allows, say, Singapore to have an opinion about Australia's licensing regime. I mean, an opinion is one thing, but they can't, they can't control it or they can't approve it. And so what we do have is something called the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, which is a UN body that meets three times a year. It has two specialized subcommittees, one on scientific and technical issues and one on legal issues, and then a main committee meeting. And those meetings are where sort of civilian and peaceful uses of outer space are discussed and coordinated. And so often what you'll have is different member states of those committees talking about their feelings <laughs> of how others have been behaving in this uh, in this realm. And then actually separately, you have under under what's called the first committee at the UN, there are discussions about security and military uses of outer space. And that's that's done in an entirely separate realm. We can talk about what's been happening in those in those uh, fora because there are some exciting developments that have happened this year, which is that you know new agenda items are getting adopted, and such things are quite rare in the uh, in the UN world. <laughs> Before we turn to that, the problem of norm enforcement maybe is most acute when it comes to things either falling out of orbit or things that are decaying and dying. So, you know, commonly we talk about this as space junk, right? Like you just have stuff kind of floating out there. China, right, recently, I say recently, it was a few years ago, right, shot a a satellite out of the sky and said, oh, it was falling. This was just us making sure that we were protecting everyone. So it went to the ocean. Are you concerned at all that before we get to really dealing with lunar government issues that we're going to end up with a space junk problem first? The real answer to that is we already have a space junk problem. And as a result of all kinds of activities over the previous decades, but it's certainly been made significantly worse by countries, including the United States, Russia, China, and India, testing anti-satellite weapons and blowing up satellites in low Earth orbit. So. I think it already is a challenge or it is a problem. And this year, as a result of that anti-satellite test, many, many different satellites and countries have had to move their assets in space as a result of the debris created from those, from that test. And so the community, in a sense that, you know, the silver lining of that is that the community is taking the topic much more seriously now. And we just saw, I think it was last week, one of the biggest developments in many decades in the space policy world, which is that the United States said that they were going to, they were making a unilateral declaration that they are committing not to do kinetic testing of ground-based anti-satellite weapons, which is something that the United States has historically been unwilling to commit to doing. And as a result, the international community has also been unwilling to commit to doing that. So there's all kinds of kind of subtle reasons why other countries may or may not choose to opt into that what's called unilateral declaration, but it was still a huge step in that direction. I'm curious to hear about one or two of the new agenda items that are making it onto the 
list that previously were either off the table or otherwise went undiscussed for whatever reason. That was one of the big ones is the United States making this ASET test ban commitment. Next month, the first committee will be kicking off what's called an open-ended working group that will be talking about the same topics in an international environment. And so that open-ended working group was a big development, and it actually came before the U.S. announcement. But of course, both were probably in the works for quite a long time before that. On the civil side, in the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, this year, after many years of, of having called for it, the committee adopted a working group as well, focused on space resource utilization. And that's really exciting because, again, historically, countries haven't wanted to talk about that topic, not because they don't think it's important, but because they don't even have a shared framework for how they want to approach the conversation. And so the Outer Space Treaty has two really, I mean, has many important clauses, but two that are very relevant for this topic. One is that the Outer Space Treaty prohibits national appropriation in outer space, which is generally interpreted to mean territorial appropriation in outer space. And it also requires free access to all areas of celestial bodies. So that means that traditional ways that we would handle territorial management through like national appropriation and then putting in place some kind of property rights regime doesn't apply for the moon or other places. And so number one, the idea of just sort of claiming land and then doing something with the resources, it's not that simple. And number two, you have people saying, well, if you can't claim land, can you claim the resources that you extract out of the land? And that's been an ongoing discussion for a long time as well. Increasingly, I would say there's an emerging consensus that that yes, you know, we can get really philosophical about it, but practically speaking, you can use the fish that you take out of the ocean, you can use resources that you take out of the surface of the moon, even if you can't appropriate the territory itself. And then a follow-on question is whether or not you can engage in commercial activities around those resources. There's a sort of cascade of questions. And I think most countries have felt that they aren't sure, they aren't even sure for themselves what the answer is yet. And so whether or not to engage in a discussion about shared norms or expectations, or even rules, it was premature. And as activity has been growing in recent years, finally, that question is coming more to the fore, literally in the same year that we're going to have the first private robotic missions to the lunar surface every single one of which has said that their interest is in looking for resources to productively use in the lunar environment. As much as I hope that there's some cool stuff up on the moon, I just can't imagine it's really economical to go up to space to find something that we likely already have on Earth. So what are the economics for this? Is this something where the billionaires are actually necessary because you're going to need to dump billions of dollars before it becomes profitable? Or is it just that we think there's something up there that's, you know, you kick moon dirt and it's diamonds everywhere? Like, like what is it that people think they're actually finding on the moon? I think the analogy to look at there is the history of kind of large-scale infrastructure, like railroads in the United States, for example, is an analogy we talk about a lot. And I think it's a combination of, of both those things, though. I think that there is an sort of innate human interest in exploring new realms. And that's not an economic drive. That's that's just a sort of like 
for better and worse, we tend to uh, pursue these things. And that's also something where often governments support, you know, like frontier, no pun intended, frontier science, frontier research and development. And so obviously, you know, we've seen governments doing that for many decades. But as we get into the kind of like this, the knee of the curve, in a sense, around seeing that there might be possibilities for sustained presence, then what you're starting to see is the need for much larger amounts of capital that could support, obviously, longer term investment, more patience, and larger installations. But it still doesn't answer your fundamental question, which is, Nobody yet knows if there is an economic um, return, quote unquote, to be had from, let's say, mining resources on the moon. But I also think if you talk to even the, whether it's the small private lander companies or the big billionaires, most of them aren't, they've got enough money already. Well, the big billionaires anyway. So they're not going to make bank. They're really going for that same original reason. And if anything, they're just looking to find ways to make it sustainable, which doesn't necessarily have to mean economically sustainable, if we can find ways to make it sort of self-contained in an operational and resource utilization sense. And that's where a lot of the interest in resources comes from. It's not, just to be clear, it's not strip mining the moon to send resources back to Earth. Most of it, whether it's commercial or government, is really deeply focused on how you could make life support systems easier, how you can make fuel on the moon that would support moving around in your buggy or going off to the next destination to Mars. So it's really about what's called in-situ resource utilization as opposed to exports. <laughs> so you originally got into the space because you were interested in countering the, the weaponization of space. And so I'm, I'm curious how you reacted to the creation of the Space Force during the Trump administration. And whether you think it was necessary, what it means to have sort of a dedicated branch or, or sort of resources within the DOD that's that's focused on space and, and what we're, we're likely to see from the Space Force in the coming years. I'll say that I don't follow the Space Force a ton because they don't do much around, around the moon, which is, I think, generally a good thing for the moment. <laughs> but, you know, I think that it's certainly complicated because it, on the one hand, it makes sense that there be more of a focus in many different areas of government on space because it's a growing area of activity. And so sometimes these things come out of just practical, like budgetary and priority setting issues. You know, if you give it a name, you can give it a budget, you can resource it to build capacity, to train up people who are working in that area to understand like the very legitimately different dynamics of that domain which will help us understand what even is a threat there. And at the moment, actually, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of the sort of basic physical features, maybe not misunderstanding, but a lack of knowledge about the sort of physical features of that domain. And that can make it, that can also escalate tensions. So uh, that's all to say that, you know, my natural peacenik self, of course, has like, has concerns about seeing a new branch of the military focus on on space, but I can also see some of the reasons why that can it can be useful in terms of of upskilling that workforce. And so I really think it will come down on a practical level to seeing seeing what they do with it. Is it used for escalation or is it used to kind of focus rhetoric and or is it used in a way that is made clear that the idea is not to provoke 
other actors and operators. We already use space for national security reasons, right? We have intelligence satellites up there collecting stuff. Presumably, other countries do as well. I know that there, the U.S. has a space fighter jet, makes it sound much cooler than I think it actually is. But I think we have a space fighter jet. So my question is really, if there's commercial value to be had there, and if we already use it for national security purposes, how do you prevent the moon from being just another military base? Well, again, our old friend, the Outer Space Treaty, is the starting point for this. And the cool thing is that the Outer Space Treaty basically was signed at the height of the Cold War. So it's essentially seen as a Cold War treaty, even though it, on the surface it reads as quite altruistic, in a sense. The context in which it was signed was one where both the USSR and the United States were afraid that the other was going to get there first and claim the moon and put a big military base on it and use it to do secret things and to launch things and to prevent the other from accessing the, the benefits of that that area. And so the Outer Space Treaty has an explicit clause that prevents the use of weapons of mass destruction in space, which we already talked about, but it also prevents the installation of, or military installations on the surface of celestial bodies. And of course, there's plenty to quibble with there in terms of the definition of these things. But as a starting point, that's a pretty strong reference to go from in terms of what the intentions of the, of the treaty signers was. It doesn't mean that it won't you know, all fall apart. And I think that that's part of what people in this field are feel is kind of timely and urgent at the moment is that we are in this transition point of the, the amount of activity, just sort of, even though it's still it's still small on an objective level. It's exploding on a relative level. And so the amount of complexity and the number of different actors is also increasing the risk that, for example, some someone will feel threatened or that someone will feel that their needs haven't been taken into consideration or that they need protection. And so what I see happening right now is the com- the international community is saying, we need to work on understanding the terms and the definitions, like what is meant by a weapon, what is meant by military activity. You also see, for example, some, some organizations in the U.S. government establishment are starting to talk about protection in deep space. And I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, because that's on the one hand, it's a way for the military to get involved in uh, space activities and not call it you know, a military installation, but it's just protection. It's sort of like police walking down the street in your hometown or something like that. But on the other hand, it's probably better that they think about protection than about trying to install weapons. <laughs> so it's all, you know, again, at the end of the day, I think it, it will come down to the intentions of the programs and the individuals that are involved at the time. I know there's a bipartisan space caucus within Congress. Is space generally an area that is bipartisan or is nonpartisan or, or or like what are the sort of vectors that do fall along partisan lines when it comes to, to space policy generally? I would say that it's quite bipartisan in the sense that you have folks from all walks who are passionate about this area. And that's true in a U.S. context and it's true in an international context. And that's one of the things that, that is so great about it. And it's also 
it's great because it's a relatively small community. And so when you do encounter folks, you know, who are from some other kind of aisle from you, you probably know them well as an individual. And it's an opportunity to see and understand where they're coming from um, in a way that you might not otherwise. So broadly, it's bipartisan. You know, we were talking about property rights earlier, and certainly the question of how, how or whether to manifest some kind of property rights regime in outer space is something that traditionally on Earth, and unsurprisingly, therefore, in the space context, does split more along party lines. One of the things that comes out of that conversation for me is often that it's important for us to distinguish between property rights and private property rights. And we often assume that in order to have property rights, they need to be private. But actually, a lot of the work that we did as an organization last year was really researching different forms of property management regimes that are not just private appropriation as a way to try and bridge what can seem like just an otherwise at odds approach to the issue. If Joe Biden came to you and said, I get like one go at this, what's the first priority for lunar policy? What is it that you say, like, this is something that's the shovel ready project on the moon? Like, what is that thing that you tell him to do? The main thing that I would say is just to hammer on it more, but it's really, you know, I think property rights and resource management is really at the crux of pretty much everything we're going to do on the moon. Making room to experiment with accountability in resource management that doesn't just look like divvying up the territory and handing it off to different folks is something that we need to do now before there are literally, you know, a bunch of spacecraft on the surface making claims and people confused about, you know, what's permitted and what's not. There's a specific project that Open Lunar has been working on related to this that uh, I will try to describe. It usually takes um, a little bit longer than a couple minutes. So, you know, we'll see how far I get. But seeing this happening, we wanted to explore an alternative to kind of a national agreements and international agreements to this. And we were asking ourselves, okay, well, how could we prototype, like we were talking about at the beginning, how could we prototype approaches to property rights that would let us test these out, see if they work, and then iterate without having to wait, you know, 10 years for an international agreement. So what we did is we set up an independent legal entity that's a trust. Trusts are designed to hold things in trust for their beneficiaries. This trust exists with its beneficiary being good stewardship of lunar resources itself. So it's a special kind of trust that's called a perpetual purpose trust. What I think is really neat about them, and Zoe knows about this, but perpetual purpose trusts are basically little like self-contained micro jurisdictions that have accountability and kind of legitimacy built in because they have a role legally within them. It's called the trust enforcer. And the trust enforcer is legally accountable to keep the trustees accountable to the purpose of the trust. So it's a whole sort of like cascade of turtles all the way down. But what we've been doing with that trust is working with partners who are commercial operators to purchase lunar regolith and then apply resource management policies to that regolith in a very kind of like small example demonstration of what we might be able to do there so that we that doesn't mean we have the answer it means that we're trying to like create the container to explore to explore how we might approach that i was going to say though on a on a more kind of like 
less sexy level. I could also point to something that I think will become more and more important, which is something called the payload approval process for missions going to space. So right now, as I mentioned, we've got a launch approval process. You know, in the United States, it's fairly well understood, but everything flows back to the launch license. So payloads on missions sometimes are not even reviewed. So it's considered the responsibility of the launch company to know what they're launching and to figure out if the thing that they're launching needs to have approval from the government. But often the launch companies don't know, you know, they have no way of knowing if this random thing that somebody, I mean, they know what the thing is that they're launching, but they might not know if it's going to cause a problem for international obligations, for sustainability, for interference with other activities. And so when you've got payloads that are going up that range from like really sophisticated science instruments to people sending the ashes of their dogs or art pieces, you know, it's just like, it's sort of a, that is very much a wild west, but it's a kind of subtle wild west. And it's something that whether or not, you know, the government needs to regulate it or just the industry needs to come up with norms about how to even talk about it. I think it's going to be an issue in the near future. One issue that I think we get into when we talk about space is that it feels very far away. I mean, literally millions of miles and whatever, but it feels very far away. How do you describe the importance of your work to the average American who's focused on bread and butter issues for themselves at home? Well, the first thing I would say is it's actually not millions of miles away. The moon is about 375,000 kilometers from the Earth. And you can get there in about three days. And, you know, when I have really bad flight connections, sometimes it takes me three days to get somewhere on Earth. So it's not it's not actually as far away as it can seem. I mean, I think that our that doesn't fully answer your question. I mean, I think that for me, the moon in particular this comes back to, you know, why I'm inspired by space in the first place. But I think that it's not about how far away it is. It's about the fact that it's this new realm where we have a chance to learn from how we've done things in the past and to take the opportunity to try new approaches. And in doing so, I think that actually we can, we can achieve the, you know, I'd say the common goal, which is to use space to help life here on earth, but we also make space closer (laughs) to earth by coming up with mechanisms to operationally relate it to, to us here. And I would hope that we also can learn something from the work you guys are doing to apply it to, as you talked about, like the high seas and the issues with the tragedy of the commons there, as well as Antarctica and the Arctic, which also have similar problems, let's say. Yeah. Well, yeah. And not just those, but also the internet and climate, right? Like these are also, there's a term for this, it's areas beyond national jurisdiction. And it's like a formal term in the legal community. And, you know, there are lots, there are lots and lots of these places. And there's more of these places over time that are not contained within the territorial borders of the state. And so in that sense, it's like we have the kind of luxury of testing out new ways of doing things at the moon. And we don't have to have them interact too much with the complexities of Earth until we've got something that we think is fairly robust. And then we can try and deploy it here in a more complicated environment. So yeah, so I think that's a really big opportunity that we shouldn't miss. 
With that, let's turn to our final segment. This is where we talk about things that we're following in the news, either politically or culturally. Zoe, what are you following this week? Last week, Harvard University released a 130-page report about the university's ties to slavery throughout its history, and it revealed that the university had benefited financially from plantations, that many Harvard professors helped to sort of cement the the intellectual legacy and sort of intellectual underpinnings of slavery through, you know, totally wrongheaded race science and so on. And the university in releasing this report also said that it would create a $100 million fund to redress some of the wrongs, you know, that, that are discussed there. And I have been following this for a long time because about a decade ago, I was among sort of early group of students that was part of some of the research efforts that laid the foundation for some of this later work. It was spearheaded by, you know, a professor in the history department. So I spent a lot of time as as an undergrad in the Harvard archives, trying to understand different pieces of Harvard's history with slavery. And it's really exciting to see that 10 years later, the university is giving it the attention it deserves, the resources it deserves. And this report is just a big milestone. That's what I'm following. Jesse Kate, what are you following this week? So this week I've been nearing the end of my journey with the book, The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. It is just like an epic tour de force. And don't give me any spoilers because I'm not done yet. But I'm just so impressed with how alive that the book makes these topics. But in particular, like what I've loved about it is it's not just a tour de force, but it's like a tour of all of the different ways that we are thinking of or could think about addressing climate change and sort of like showing up for the challenges of the future in a way that, that I think situates them in a kind of longitudinal context so that it's not nothing's going to be a silver bullet. Nothing's going to be like one solution to rule them all. We're really going to need to see institutional change and technological development working together over you know many decades and i feel like that's what this book lays out in a way that you know i i hope we'll have some some takeaway at the end that isn't just and then we all died excellent this week i'm tracking indonesia's banning of palm oil exports indonesia is the largest supplier of palm oil in the world and palm oil is used in everything from cooking in developing countries to detergents, cosmetics, and biofuel. Indonesia said that they were doing this to prevent increases in price for their own citizens. COVID and the war in Ukraine are putting extreme pressure on local economies, especially in the developing world. However, protectionism will not solve this problem. In order to prevent further going down the path towards protectionism, the U.S. and our allies should step up our aid to countries ravaged by the economic tidal waves of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. It's the right thing to do for the people there. It's the right thing to do for economic development, and it may earn us some goodwill along the way. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Jesse Kate at Jesse Kate.
If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by Freedom of Speech by Elon Musk. Freedom to say whatever you want, whenever you want. Some restrictions apply. Freedom of speech by Elon Musk only protects the speech of those in the United States and does not cover complaints against Elon, his friends, his companies, or the Chinese government. Ask your local right-wing troll if freedom of speech by Elon Musk is right for you. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. (laughs) 